and welcome to What Is It About the Weather, where weather is always the theme, but the weather is seldom the topic. Now today we're going to be talking about weather and elections, and weather weather has the ability to actually impact the outcome of a specific election. But before we get into that, this week's been a an interesting week for weather forecasters. I know that's not where you expected me to go with this, and i got to get my soapbox out a little bit. So we weather forecasters, as many of you know, get, you know, a lot of flack for your forecast was wrong. You know, you got a job and you're only right 50% of the time and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, recently, and not just this week, but in, you know, Brexit polls as well, there's been a lot of challenge for the polling industry with outcomes that haven't necessarily reflected the polls or their polling predictions, let's say. And first, I must say, I'm empathetic to all the pollers out there that have had to deal with this. And what I'm sure you're catching is a lot of flack for not necessarily predicting an outcome that was the final outcome. At the same time, at the same time, while I can be empathetic, I'm not going to listen to people try to tell me that, oh, poor pitiful us we have a much harder job to do well you know we have to do this every day and you can argue well you only have to do it every so often or you know it's only occasionally but let's be clear on this major impact weather forecast happen not as often you know you can have a a major hurricane or a big blizzard or whatever and that's when people really focus on you when you get it wrong we get a lot of flack too so some of our magnitudes can be pretty big as well. And I guess, generally speaking, there's there's a great article in the Washington Post that was written up and link in the show notes as always. And I had an interesting exchange also with a couple of meteorologists on Twitter, both of which were quoted in that article about this topic. And I think all meteorologists recognize that the natural systems and forecasting of natural systems is very different in some ways, but also very similar in some ways to weather forecasting. You know, we have interesting feedback problems. You know, they talk about poll values influencing how many people decide to turn out. Well, we have issues in feedback and weather forecasting that lead to incomes or outcomes, incomes, outcomes that are very different from what the in initial anticipation was. And a lot of it does have to do with magnitude. And this can happen. It can be more pronounced and even in high magnitude events. And so while I appreciate that the human element is different, the, I would say in the meteorological world, we've been studying and modeling for a very long time. And we know we don't always get it right. And we try to express the uncertainty. And I don't think we always do well with the forecasting of the uncertainty and or the, necessarily that the, the population that's absorbing the forecast is necessarily receiving it in the way we intend it to. And and to some extent, we've got to continue to work on that. But I would say that's the same for polls. Yes, they've got to deal with this human element, but they get the data points. They go out there and they ask all sorts of things, but it, it points to a need to update models, to refine for new scenarios, and to accept the fact that sometimes you're going to get it wrong and you're going to catch flack for that, but that should compel you to get it right. And people shouldn't give you a free pass and it's not worth about, yes, you can discuss the complexities. I'll, the second article, I guess, the, the one that kind of put me over the edge a little bit. I didn't agree with the, the thing in the Washington Post. I, I, I thought we were a little too nice and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I'll even use Hurricane Matthew as an example that a natural system, 
something very naturally happened that shifted the path of, of the hurricane a very few miles, but it was enough that Florida was spared a great deal of the outcome that could have been devastating to Florida. It ended up being devastating upstream. Again, we've got this feedback loop problem that had it been different in Florida, it may have been different upstream, but in many ways, people view that as a busted forecast. I think the forecast was good. It captured the uncertainty that this might happen because we recognize the limitations of our models. And I think that's where the political polling can can learn from, that they probably need to do a better job with their error bars. And if they're trying to convince anybody that, you know, it's plus or minus 1% or 2%, maybe it should be plus or minus 5% or 7%. Um, and there's a lot of lessons learned on that line. And I think they need to focus on the lessons learned instead of trying to convince me that, forecasting is different and harder for those things because in many ways it is harder and different but in many ways the natural science world that we're trying to forecast and doing it in the framework we're trying to do it it also has complexities that are well beyond the scope of what we can do today and handle today so there's always this interpretation and that's where we get in this reflecting uncertainty so i'll put my soapbox away i guess the second article i posted which i thought was a little too defensive for the big data oh it's not all our fault things and weather forecasting is easy i don't i i, I mean, you can imagine i'm not going to buy that one um, again i empathize with what they're having to deal with um, but i think some of the onus is on them too improve what they're doing in both the way that they do it and use this as a learning experience, but also in the way they communicate it. So let's move on to elections. Now, I have a good friend over at CNN, and he was doing his, he did an article and posted a little thing in the Facebook, his Facebook feed this week about it being, you know, top on CNN.com. And that was great for him. And it was simply about uh, weather day forecast in can weather impact elections and it was a nice write-up and you know in the u.s this week the weather was not deemed to be a big player in everything that was going on but it's something i've thought about before and it's not a new topic to me but it reminded me that you know this is this is an interesting topic and so i started reading again and and some of what he brought up in that article i i was familiar with but some of it i i hadn't looked into in a while and you know, we've got a lot of research that's been done maybe in the last, I would say, last decade or so. And some of that research, while some of it has started in the U.S., has not been exclusive to the U.S. It's, it happens in the U.K., you know, where they love to talk about weather a lot as well, but other countries too. And I, I will say the little caveat as I get into this, as always, I'm generally referring to English research and sometimes some Spanish research. But if you have stuff from a country that you're in that shows interesting results, I'd be interested in seeing it. So feel free to send it along to me. But historically, there's been a lot of talk. And for a very, very long time, it really wasn't well documented. And that's what the research in the last 10 years has really strong to do. And there's really, when we're, we're going to look at it, we're going to look at it from a couple of different perspectives before we dive into that, what I would call kind of a, a watershed or a ma the major paper in the U.S. that's about 10 years old now because it really quantified, like I said, what people were thinking before then. But let's talk about the ways in which we think about it before we get into the specifics of an individual election. And that's what that paper was focused on is can precipitation specifically impact the outcome of an election result? So before we get into that specific, let's start a little broader. 
And let's look at the idea of attribution. Okay, so it's a question of attribution. How do we look at an individual event, particularly natural disaster events, but it can also be, you know, something more localized to us and put it on somebody, whether we should or not. And this gets into the idea of are we dealing with something? Do we respond? Are we responsive in the nature and say that event happened and it's so-and-so's fault? Without any real, we just, we, we want so often to put blame on things. And that's a very natural human response. And we do it with natural events as well, whether it's things that are like earthquakes or tsunamis, which aren't specifically weather related, or it can be a hurricane, typhoon, or blizzard, you know, that has major impacts. Or, or are we attentive? Do we use our brains and get in, investigate, and realize that, okay, it's not the human's fault that it happened. But it is the human's response that's important to us. And so in this, you know, there was a specific paper I looked at, and it looked at both at a local level, and I use the word local at a state level here in the U.S., uh, because I know that doesn't equate globally, but a state level and, and what it's looked at at, at that more. Um, so it's not, you know, necessarily like a city or a county that you live in, but at a larger level, state level, and at the federal level. And I guess the findings, the, the good findings were <laughs> that generally us humans are not stupid and we know that people aren't responsible for these events. But we do take very seriously how the people that we put into power or are in power, whether we put there or not, respond to these events in terms of meeting the needs that come out of it, You know, whether it's economic, whether it's whatever it might be. And... I read, so this paper talked about that, and it also, a second paper I talked about, it, it, it introduced even shark attacks, and the, and the reason I bring it up is there's a couple of things that go on. So there's how people respond, and you got to look at what people are feeling and, and how, how they worry in what might impact how they behave, both in their political response at a poll, but just their general political thinking. So if they view a certain... Uh, group like a, a political party is being more responsive to certain needs, they may more identify with that. That's if these things have been of high importance to them or high impact to them. So I bring up the shark attack one because in one of the papers I read, that was actually the more interesting thing was the story of, and this happened over 100 years ago, these shark attacks off a, a coastal area in the U.S. There's a resort area. And so those people, there was a safety element, okay, and the U.S. government put, additional boats out of the water to try to deal with killing sharks if they saw them, which is kind of a, boy, the odds of them being successful that is, that's been proven very over time is very difficult. But then there was the economic impact because these resorts weren't getting visitors and nothing was done on that front. And the election results bore out this difference. So people, certain people felt good because their safety was taken care of, but the people that were more impacted economically, right, were not sympathetic to the government's response, and so they it, it influences how they behaved at the polls in that way. Now, so so again, we've got this how we look at things as humans. We're not we're not stupid. We know how to attribute, but we also do have a short attention span, and that's important to keep in mind with all these things. Is the further away from election cycle, and I saw this in Chile with the earthquake and in 2010 where we had this 8.8 .8 earthquake and the 
people who were in power versus the ones that came into power. The ones that were in power were not viewed as being responsive enough. And the ones that came into power got a lot of credit for being responsive or it was viewed as responsive, but you get this risk-reward thing. And it's a, it's a tricky thing about how and when people respond and that they do it before the after the disaster and should they happen. So, again, it's not always as, as straightforward as we like to make it out. There is more nuances, and it does get into that human equation about how we evaluate things. But the short, short-term things to keep in mind are we are smart enough to place blame associated with how we respond or how we even should have responded in advance, yet we don't think long enough term and we do tend to think very localized we think about how it impacts us or those that we know directly versus how it may impact the community as a whole even then the next thing we get into is this one of scale and the reason that's important is you know quite often weather events specifically are for a country like the u.s they're localized so the outcome and the way we vote here i know not everyone understands it's a little different it's not just pure popular vote but it may influence a specific region or a specific state or locality in that it doesn't impact at a national level. And so you have to you have to consider that when you're doing this analysis. But that could be the true in you know other countries as well. So a, a smaller country, a big weather event could impact the whole entire country. Right. So you do have to keep that in mind when you're when you're doing this evaluation. And that's been one of the challenges up to this point in terms of how people have evaluated it before this this paper came out that too often the granularity of the investigation wasn't in-depth enough to consider the nuances of, okay, we had some rain in certain areas. I think it might, you know, it, it, there, there was not enough Occam's racers <laughs> going back to that from the last episode. You know, too many conditions, I guess, to, to have an outcome that was any more than anecdotal evidence. All right, so we've got this you know, so it's the scale of the weather, and it, of course, it's the scale of election, and it gets back to this attribution. Do we consider that it's the the country level response that's more important versus the localized response, et cetera? So then, you know, we we so we've got that in mind. So let's get into two ways of thinking about it. So there's the idea of voter turnout, and then we're going to get into the idea of psychology and and the role it has. But this this paper that I've been referring to. That happened in 2007 and was also mentioned in the CNN post as well, uh, was very focused on precipitation, as I mentioned, and and on turnout of the voters, not how they were thinking at the time or how thinking may impact turnout, but specifically precipitation and turnout. And, and there's a couple of things we need to introduce outside the meteorological world when you're thinking about this that are very key to this. And one is the whole idea of the cost of any event and not not just voting but anything we do we, we weigh everything in cost right what's the cost what's the benefit you know what's the cost of not sleeping versus sleeping oh, okay i'll go to sleep you know hopefully that's not the way it works we our bodies just tell us at some point but you know with all things that we make a, a, an active conscious decision about we generally are evaluating that in terms of what's the benefit and how much does do we have to expend to get there? Now, cost with elections can have different things. It's it's not a simple, you know, vote or no vote. And cost can be very real about here in the U.S. Elections are, you know, nationally at least, are always on Tuesdays or even during a day of the week. 
And that has real things. People have to work. And while work may allow them to go, you know, let's say a salesman. A salesman may view that they're going to lose commission on making sales and that it's not worth it to them to miss that opportunity. And I know even here, when I was growing up, I don't think Election Day was always a holiday. But what we do have is this time around it was. Now, at first glance, you may think, well, that's a good thing, right, that that people have time to then go vote. But people also then have kids at home that they may not have traditionally had, and they need to account for those. And getting a bunch of kids and taking them with you to a polling station may not be easy either. So there are all these you know, kind of risk-reward things that we consider. So you've got the risk-reward equation and the, and the cost element, which weather is a component of. And then you've got the types of voters, and this gets more into the psyche but that really wasn't the depth of what was explored in the paper. So core voters are people that generally are going to vote every time. You know, they feel it's their duty to vote or they feel strongly about uh, their belief system or whatever it might be. And then you've got peripheral voters, which are more likely to be motivated in certain circumstances, whether it's a specific cause, a person that's running for office, you know, a critical election, whatever it might be. And the core voter is traditionally associated with conservative politics and peripheral with more liberal. Studies have bore that out here in the U.S. And it does seem to hold in some of the other countries where I read studies about. Like I said, there have been more studies in other countries. It's, you know, this is certainly not just a U.S. only thing since this big study that happened in 2007. So we have these these um, additional studies that go on, and we'll talk about some of their results as well. But staying with this one at hand, so we've got those two kind of non-weather components. And their evaluation, their goal was looking at specifically does rain and or snow have a meaningful impact on the way people turn out to vote and what does that mean ultimately? Now, their focus was on more rain-led to turnout, not it didn't really necessarily get into why the turnout didn't happen. You know, was it because it was more difficult for those people to go to the polls? They they focused on this, you know, more peripheral vote, but they didn't get into the periphery. Might have something to do with socioeconomic. I, I mean, I need to make that clear. Some other people have delved into that and and talked about the concept that if it's more difficult for you to get to a polling place, maybe you have to take public transportation and. You don't want to stand out in the elements or you're at a polling station that tends to be very crowded. That may influence as well. They, they focused more on just the turnout levels and on this core periphery sort of understanding. Now, in looking at that, what they found, you know, to, to summarize, and they did look at it, like I said, unlike previous studies, they looked at it at a, at a very granular level and they said, okay, what's normal for a, a given location. And then, though, what I didn't like is they looked at an absolute value above that. So they said if if one inch more of rain fell, that that led to a 1% change in voter turnout. Now, I would argue that they should have used more of a percentage of normal. And, and the reason I say that is in some areas, an additional inch of rain, let's say if you already get a half an inch of rain on, on a normal day in November, which is when the voting was here, an additional inch of rain may or may not be meaningful. Yeah, it'll have some impact, but you're already going, eh, it's what or whatever. Whereas an inch of rain in, in locations where 
they're relatively dry or, or it was more of an abnormal event, I think could have had a, a different type of impact. Now, I realize that involves looking at things a different way, but the intriguing idea, I guess, is still that it has some impact, okay? But keep in mind that they went from normals, okay, to uh, absolute versus a normalized variation or, you know, taking a look at uh, variation to normal as a percentage, which I think would have been useful. So let's talk about this 1%. And it was a little different with snow, but let, let's just assume for a moment you got 1% and it's just rain. The idea, and this is what they went into with the core versus the periphery, they, what they found is that it has a larger impact on periphery. And again, they didn't get necessarily into socioeconomic or the exact reason on that, but periphery voters are less likely. So Generally speaking, the conservative party or the one with the core voters ended up with a 2.5% gain. Okay, so I'm not going to get into all the math of the podcast. You can read the, go read the paper in the show notes if you really want to get into this. The short answer is they found two elections in the U.S. passed where it could have come into play. And it may have changed the outcome. They are the first to not try to tell you that it definitively did. But there, the election in 1960 and in 2000, that weather could have very specifically had an outcome because it happened in locations where the votes were close enough that it would have potentially swung things in a different way. Now, additional research has been done in other countries since then, mostly in Europe, again, because I was able to read English stuff, and the, the results are mixed, but a lot of it came back to this cost-benefit thing. You know, in, in one country, I think it was, um, I don't remember if it was in Sweden or Norway off the top of my head, that they looked at it and they said, no impact, but the variance or the, the weather was not enough of a cost differential because generally voting was already a relatively low cost thing because it happened on the weekend and for other values, and or there wasn't enough difference between the two parties where there was a perceived benefit even from voting, right, in terms of difference of, of outcome. So the intriguing thing, I think, with all of it is there does seem to be this underlying possibility that it could impact results when it comes to voter turnout. I think what will be most interesting if someone takes this data and, and takes some of these follow-on studies and, and really digs down into it deeper, it's not an easy thing to do. And actually, I think what, what probably needs to happen is a good, you know, multi-focus type of study to understand these things uh, because that probably should be represented in polls as well. You know, and that was like, like I said, there was a lot of last weekend is, is weather going to impact it. And if you look back, if you Google the internet, you'll find that in past elections, it's been more or less of an issue. So, but turnout's not the only way. There, there's also this idea of psyche, and I think what's intriguing about that is while I may question and say, okay, I didn't like the way they stratified the data or looked at it, and et cetera, and that I'm, I might question a 1% difference having a 2.5% impact, and what is 2.5% anyways? Well, first of all, we all know that sometimes a 1% difference can be enough. But if we look at that and we throw into the idea of how it affects us mentally, both with the short-term weather and maybe even longer-term climate, and how it's impacting an area, there's this idea of psychology of voting, which can be real on, on the day of vote. So you've got the idea of, 
you know, if you've had a, a great season, you may feel different. You know, if, if the weather's been normal, you may feel different going into the polls. Or it may get back to this attribution, and maybe at a, at a conscious level, we do take individual high-impact events like natural disasters, but maybe in the background, if weather has overall been seasonable and what we're used to, we feel better, and this could get into the idea of voting for an incumbent versus a replacement, because, you know, do I really want change? And this change apparently can also be impacted. Additionally, a, a, another paper I read looked at, if it's, and this got very granular back down to the day of type of thing, so if it's sunny on the day of, of voting, people that have gone to the polls or are going to the polls are more likely to feel comfortable with voting for change and that it's less risky. So it, it actually gets in the idea of us associating weather with risk. Whereas if it's a rainy day, people are going to be more conservative, and I don't mean that in terms of their principles, but they're going to vote for less risk. So let's say an idea of some ideas coming up in the polls that maybe there's some risk associated with it, but there's also you know the potential for a certain outcome that you agree with. Well, you may choose based on the weather that day, apparently, to vote if it's raining, you may say, well, you know, I like the idea, but let's stick with where we are for now. And so all those ideas in, in the th these kind of ways that are, again, getting even harder to measure, but it gets back into that psychology of weather, which we've discussed before and again. So this episode really touches on psychology of weather and historical events, right? I, I, I don't know that there's enough data to ever go back and look at, did the weather, and I shouldn't say that, at least on the stuff I've seen in the U.S. elections at a, at a, at a heavy, a high level, I guess, overarching level. It's just too big to say that any weather event probably had the income of changing the election results. Now, there might be some examples globally, and that, that would be an interesting did weather change history event on, on elections. And, yeah, maybe you could look at it. But, you know, many people argue that specific elections have very seldom changed the course of, of history as well. So let's conclude here. One, you know, I get back to I'm always encouraged when people are generally smart and we know not to assign weather disasters necessarily to an individual. But I do think it's interesting that we do attribute um, how, how people respond and governments respond to how we go and vote, although our attention span is short. But that's nothing new. It, it's, that's been proven out again and again. Now, when we get to this is there enough impact within a specific election? I think, based on everything I've read, that there is the potential that it could. I'm not convinced that it has. Okay, I think there's potential that that we will see maybe sometime in the future more definitive research or definitive case where it's happened. But the further we get away from these events, the harder it is to, to tell. And also, sometimes we've got to be careful with statistics bearing out something. And just because the statistic says it doesn't mean that that's the, the cause-effect relationship. So while that research, like I said, was very good at going into granular nature in terms of its investigation, there were already things that I saw in it right away that I would have changed and I would have said your findings would be more robust if so if additional research is done we may find that the evidence says it again the idea is there and I think the 
idea is plausible. I'm not sure that so far, so far, that the research and analysis that's been done gives us a, a definite answer. And this gets in the whole thing. Ones and two percentages sometimes get shrouded in that level of uncertainty. So this leads to an answer of a political answer to, to the question of the day, which is it's too close to call. All right. Let's move on to the interesting tidbit of the week. Now, I don't know why I was looking at hailstones, maybe because I wish I had some thunderstorms to take pictures of or something. But I was reading some analysis about hailstones and came across the largest hailstone ever recorded, at least it's been documented, is 8 inches or 20 centimeters. Pretty big when you think about it. It's a big piece of ice. But did you know that hailstones are not the largest piece of ice that fall from the sky. We have these things called mega cryometeors, and these things can get huge. I mean, tens of pounds or even larger, that's that's pretty big. So enough to bust through roofs and collapse cars. And there have been a, a, a sharp increase in the number of cases reported recently, although they've been documented over the last couple of hundred years. Now, the further we go back in time, always, it's it can be difficult to know whether the one the report was true and accurate and what the real source was. But but the theories behind what's causing these things are one airplanes and not waste, but falling a piece of ice coming off a fuselage. And that handles I, I guess a lot of the modern thinking, but doesn't attribute itself to maybe some of the older cases. And so there's been talk about certain atmospheric conditions that we don't understand and it happening there. And then the last, which is also kind of intriguing, is extraterrestrial. And no, I don't mean aliens. I mean coming from ejection from either a comet or a planet or moon and traveling all the way to Earth. In any case, you go Google it because there's some conspiracy theory and stuff in there and I don't want to get too deep, but it was it was an intriguing thing that, that dist- uh, I guess it appealed to my ADD uh, this week and so I thought I would share it with you. So let's wrap up here. Thanks to all that have, that have continued to provide support for the podcast. You know our model, RSVP, rate, share, validate, and pledge. Whichever way you do it is greatly appreciated. You can contact us. You know the ways. Email, whatisitabouttheweather at gmail.com. Website, whatisitabouttheweather.com, where you find all the concepts of the RSVP, ways to support us, ways to subscribe to the podcast, ways to keep in touch with me and the, the podcast on social media, etc. So until next time, until next time, may you have enjoyable and interesting weather because, of course, we all know there's much more to weather than the weather itself. We're tired of hearing our uncle grovel, so please support him on patreon.com slash weather. This is a two-word super production.